0: Hello, and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Americans hold tens of trillions of dollars in outstanding debt, from mortgages and credit cards to student, auto, and small business loans. Few people think about the back-end servicing, sending statements, collecting, and remitting payments, chasing delinquencies required to collect on all these loans, but it's a massive business worth more than $7 billion annually. My guest today is Lloyd Roberts, author, leader, and co-founder of LoanPro, an API-based loan management fintech platform hosted entirely in the cloud. Founded in 2014 by Lloyd and his brothers, Rhett and Ben, LoanPro's platform now manages billions of dollars, millions of loans, and hundreds of lenders, including traditional and alternative lenders and servicers, covering almost every type of loan, from prime and subprime, to buy now, pay later, personal and auto loan. San Francisco fintech investor FTV led Loan Pro's $100 million growth investment in 2021 as the company's first institutional investor, and has since helped the company source new customers, hire top talent, and expand into new segments. The Roberts brothers hail from a Utah family of ranchers who also own two car lots and a lending company. They created the lending company in 2008 to support their car dealerships. As the software grew in popularity, the brothers decided to focus more attention on the lending software. They believe digitizing the entire back office of loan servicing is the only future that will work for both lenders and borrowers, resulting in lower costs, more efficiency, and improving financial inclusion. After leading the company's sales and business development as chief revenue officer since its inception, Lloyd took a step back from operations to write a book called GQ, a formula that anybody can use to achieve personal fulfillment in life, regardless of backgrounds or beliefs. He then joined forces with his fourth brother, Wade, in launching Become More, a charity focused on increasing fulfillment and prosperity through health and education grants. Lloyd brings a unique blend of grassroots wisdom and effective go-to-market expertise. In this episode, we travel the fascinating journey from his ranching roots to fintech innovator, and hear him set the benchmark on bootstrapping, operating, and scaling a business while maintaining a strong corporate culture. It is a refreshing perspective on how to approach entrepreneurship in contrast with the growth-at-all-cost model that prevailed over the last decade. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: So I grew up in Syracuse, Utah, just a small pseudo-farm area of Utah. It's expanded a lot in the last 20 years, but very much a farm community growing up and grew up in a relatively large family. We had seven children in the home, and I was right in the middle. So it's kind of the peacemaker between the two on both sides of the family, and the one that a lot of the siblings shared their secrets with and came to if they were distressed about something. So I had a lot of that experience growing up and how to navigate those waters, which definitely helped out entering into the business world.
0: So in terms of the dynamic, then did you get a sense at an early age of responsibilities or taking on challenges? And I know in our earlier conversations, you talk about some early entrepreneurial endeavors at a very early age. You talk to us a little bit about what was the genesis of that and, and why you felt empowered to gravitate towards?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So my parents did very well for our family, and they did a great job taking care of all of us. So we were middle to lower middle class and my parents were very fiscally responsible and so all the money they could they put away into the four oh one K and we lived off the garden and we had a cow we lived off that. Going out to eat was a very rare experience. And so we learned pretty young a couple lessons. But one is if we wanted to make it in this world, then we needed to go and make it happen. We needed to exchange our talent and our time to Provide some value. So, even as a a preteen, we knew that we could do that and we could go sell things to the neighbors. We could go mow their grass. We could pick up their dog poop and so on. And so, we did. Me and my siblings, we started quite young doing that. We also had some other things. We had three members of our family that had cystic fibrosis. And a lot of families, children have cystic fibrosis. It's kind of just a hurry up to wait for the inevitable passing but my parents didn't treat us like that at all they treated us like we were exactly the same as everybody else and we had the same chores and jobs and they pushed us and it was actually quite helpful because we didn't feel like we were any different we didn't feel like we had a terminal illness we just pushed forward and made it happen regardless of what the medical world or others might have said oh you should Calm down. You should chill out. You should relax. No, we didn't do much of any of those things. We pushed hard, and I find that's been quite helpful in my later years.
0: Yeah, and it's certainly perspired. I think again for listeners and the conversations that led to this podcast is it was very clear, and that's why I asked a question again because it was very clear that sense of responsibility and also really manifesting what one should want their future to look like. At least work towards that. In other words, it's not just gonna fall on your lap. You gotta go and manifest it and then act on it. Yes. And it transpired from the conversation we had and something I want to talk at some point during the podcast is also I know you're a writer and you've thought a lot about that the purpose filled existence. And I'll certainly want to touch about that. There's two other things also that I found remarkable and interesting. One is and it sounds, again, from earlier conversations that you've kept those principles, right? In terms of, well, not living large necessarily, even though you've obviously done well now and, and you can afford a lot more than you could back during your childhood. But saying, well, money is really a means to an end and living conservatively, right? Living in, in almost a parsimonious manner, right? It seems like it was ingrained from the get go. The the one thing that I'd like to drill on is you ended up starting businesses with your brothers. And it sounds like that collaboration, that trust started early on. And as as you and I know, when, for example, investors look at early stage businesses, one of the things they always assess is who are the people? Because that's really what you're betting on. And what is the dynamic between those people, how they built the trust and also the resilience to work through the ups and downs? How was it like to... I happen to be an only child, so I don't know that dynamic. But my friends who have siblings at least during childhood or adolescence, at times was turbulent, right? The relationship wasn't great at all times. So how did you guys develop that relationship over time?
1: Yeah, even at a very young age, me and my siblings have had quite the strong bond. And it might be because doctors were constantly telling us that, hey, you don't have very much time left on this planet. And that kind of changes perspective some, right? And it might be that we were required to lean on each other. We didn't have a lot of the the common... Conveniences, we didn't have air conditioning, we didn't have pockets full of cash to do anything, and we had to lean on each other to do that. And so, I leaned on my older siblings in a lot of ways, and in many ways, I leaned on my younger siblings. And a lot of that was we did, we had lots of chores around the house, yeah, but even when we weren't doing those chores, we wanted to go earn money. So, we were creating businesses at a very young age, and we had hundreds of lawns that we were mowing. And we did that together. And from an early age, it was the concept was less about me and more about we. So we were able to leverage the strengths of the individuals for the best of the collective. And we just kept on doing that. And so I actually bounced out of Utah for a couple of years and went went to Atlanta, Georgia and shared about Jesus for a couple of years and then came back to Utah and from that point forward, my brothers and I just started new businesses after new businesses, and I think Loan Pro is the twelfth business that we started together, and all of them we just we leveraged the revenue of business one to create business two, and then business two to business three and this is everything from cattle ranches and real estate companies to auto dealerships to auto lending business. and then we got into software, we originally got into software as a way to build software for our own lending business. It was going quite well. We wanted to really scale the auto lending business and the technology we didn't feel it was out in the marketplace to allow us to do that in a compliant and scalable way. So we decided to build it. And then we had enough other local lenders that said, hey, seems like what you guys are doing is working. Seems like you're winning. We wanna do that too. Can you help us out? And we told them, well, you have to build software. And they said, well, we're not gonna do that. Can we use your software? And so that's when our first version of loan servicing software was born. And we ended up getting hundreds of customers utilizing our first platform. And then we started building our second platform. And that's what really took off. And that's called Loan Pro. Now we have over a thousand lenders throughout the US and Canada. Some of them are small mom and pop auto lenders or medical lenders, or they finance hot tubs or hot water heaters or whatever they may be. And then on the other side of the coin, we have large enterprise lenders that are financing billions of dollars of student loans or personal loans, or we even do now credit cards in addition to the, the installment offerings. And so we've now built a business that two years ago, me and my two brothers were able to take $100 million off the table and check that personal financial freedom box by selling the minority interest of the business that we bootstrapped all the way until two years ago and then since that point, we are recently recognized as one of the newest unicorns in Utah, and we're not done yet. We have plenty of firepower, and we're excited to take this business to the next level.
0: That sounds like a super exciting journey, and I'm looking forward to going through the motions with you. Throughout that development, so did you at an early age in terms of Working with your brothers and the first iterations of businesses that you guys developed, did you figure out what your magic powers were versus your brothers?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we figured it out pretty early. I ended up being more on the revenue generation side. And my brother, Rhett, he's always kind of focused on the back end side. He is actually the CEO and president of Pro. He does a great job, one of the smartest people I know. And then my brother, Ben, he was more on the operations side. And so no matter if we were in the auto dealership or the lending business or the real estate business, these are the lanes that we all seem to stay in, no matter what the actual product or service was.
0: What is it about convincing others to part, essentially saying the calculus, right? You said it, the first wave of customers were folks who were saying, well, we want the same thing you have. And then you said, well, go build it like we did. And they said, well, we don't want to do that. So- you have a very keen understanding of what it takes. And I know we talked about this a little bit when we spoke first is it's really this concept of value and showing where the value is for the person you're talking to, right? So why do you think you develop a skill at an early age in being able to convey that value element? Because sales is a very abstract notion for a lot of folks, right? People talk about hackers and developers like, Yeah, you go out, you write lines of codes, you might be very skilled at architecting, at at problem solving. Sales is a different mindset. Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So if your product or your service is lackluster, man, sales is a, it's a real difficult process, right? And it's not fun at all, because it's really difficult to believe in the product or service that you're actually selling. So we've always focused on How can we provide true value? But the odd part is, I don't actually believe that we're selling value. I believe that you're selling perceived value. And so that's not selling what I want somebody to buy. It's rather figuring out what is the customer, what problems are they looking to have solved, right? And sure, it might be something that decreases time that them or their team needs to invest in a a category. It might be something in the compliance category where they don't want to get slapped on the wrist from the government, or they don't want to get sued or open up liability. Or it might be one of the easiest ones to quantify is if you can generate profits for them. And that could be decreased costs or it could be increased revenue. And if you can quantify that and really figure out what problem they're looking to solve, then it's pretty easy to help them see the value you can bring to the table. For example, if I can charge you $100,000 a month on a reoccurring basis, but I can quantify quite simply that I can make or save you $600,000 a month. Well, now I'm a good deal, even though you're paying me a pretty penny for my services, right? And so that's really the root of what we try to get to is figure out what problems are is the business or the consumer looking to have solved, and our platform can do a lot of things, but It does so much that we don't want to just go through a a list of features, advantages, and benefits. It's like too overwhelming. So instead, we put all that to the side and we figure out what problems or jobs to be done are they looking for? And then can we do them? And sometimes the answer is no. It just depends on what they're looking for. And if the answer is no, we'll be straight up with them and be like, look, you're looking for these things to get resolved and we can't do that for you. And sometimes the answer is yes. Oftentimes it's a blend of that where we can do maybe 80, 90% of what they're looking for, but we'll we'll often lead with what we can't do. And because we want them to know that we aren't just telling them whatever we think they want to hear, but rather giving them the reality of here's what we can't do. Well, first we understand what it is. We've done the due diligence to understand what it is that you're looking for, what jobs to be done, what problems are you trying to solve? So we understand that and we can now articulate it in a way that perhaps you've never even articulated it. And so that builds some rapport. Second, here's what we can't do. And then there's some potential solutions that we can help you with, but our core offering doesn't solve these issues. And we realize you need those to be solved. And then third, here's what we can do. And that's obviously a much larger list. And at that point, they know that, we understood what their needs were and could articulate it even better than they came into the conversation being able to do so. We understand the jobs that we can't do for them, but they've been clearly identified. And then here's the list of things that we can do for them to increase their revenue, decrease their costs, help them with compliance, decrease their risk, whatever it is that we're collectively trying to solve together.
0: That is one of the most comprehensive Description of what sales should really be about. It's really decomposed in a way that I feel not only is going to be useful for people listening to it, but is useful to me as a reminder of it. It's applicable in a field that you're obviously intimately familiar with, but I think it's generic, right? And so here are some key principles that people can really take away from this conversation.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't come off, it's not really salesy at that, right? It's not like you're some slimy sales guy. A good you go to a restaurant and they don't call the person that comes and helps you at your table a salesperson. They call them a server. And so if you can adopt that same mentality of how can I serve you, I'm going to give you a menu of available options that we have as a restaurant. But I want to understand what are you looking for, you know, what are you in the mood for, what problems are you trying to solve, and then I'll make some recommendations and say, ooh, well this is a really good item on the menu. If I do my job really good then you are pleased with the service that you received from the restaurant and from me as a server. And you never leave saying, that person sold me anything. They just served me if they did their job right.
0: Yeah, indeed. And I would say another thing that I think many, especially engineering-led organizations, where the complexity lies on the sales process is If you take your restaurant analogy that I actually use quite a bit and saying, especially for investors, it's the same thing, right? Saying, well, first of all, if you are offering food, if you're a restaurant, well, you need to find people, folks who actually are hungry. Because if they're not hungry, you might dangle the food in front of them, they're just not going to be interested, right? We know we get hungry several times a day, and when we are hungry, we are looking for food. So if you happen to be a food option, then the second fork in the road is are you hungry for the type of food that they're offering, right? And so again it's finding those customers, finding those investors that not only want your food, will want to eat first and then do they want your food. And I think it's again these are sounds very basic. It sounds very primitive, but I think these are very very important reminders to anyone thinking about okay, what does go to market really mean? Because starting from that primitive You can start decomposing, right? You start mapping your stakeholders. You start understanding what their needs are. As you said, serve them better across the different channels, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, you're right. And, you know, just to keep running with your analogy, you can do an amazing job getting people into your restaurant and you can do an amazing job serving them and letting them and understanding what the options are and presenting them to them. But at the end of the day, if your food is subpar, they're not coming back. And so the quality of your offering needs to be next level. It needs to have that wow factor. And if it doesn't, well, you're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money to get people in, and they're not going to come back and you're going to wonder where are, are all of my customers. But if your product is amazing, now the energy you need to put into getting people into your restaurant is low. You actually don't need to be the best marketing company. Because word of mouth, they're going to tell their brother-in-law and their best friend and whoever it is, oh, you need to check out this new restaurant. Oh my goodness, you got to try this specific dish. And they become your sales force for you because they're the ones that have a testimony of a personal experience with your organization. So we put a lot of energy at Pro into building a product that has that wow factor. And so that our customers are often the ones telling other lending companies and banks and credit unions and brands about what we do for them. And then when they reach out to us, they don't say things like, well, give me references, give me referrals. I need, because they heard about us from an existing customer that was in love with their experience they're having. Half of our job is already done at that point.
0: This concept of referenceability is central to your development as a business, right? Because if I go back to what started it, it's literally, we built it for ourselves, we improved it, probably fine-tuned it, debugged it. We were trying to solve a problem that you know, unbeknownst to us was occurring across the country and probably around the world. And we were applying our own skills internally as subject matter experts to build it for ourselves. And I think you said earlier on, And I wanted to ask you exactly how that happened. But it sounds like, again, that referenceability was almost implicit, right? In the fact that when your peers in the industry, over the course of conversations, the topic came up, they realized that you had essentially built what everyone else needed, right? So even that first step, and that's important, again, having something tangible that you could reference. And in this case, nothing better than saying, well, we're eating our own food. You know, not only do we serve you the food, but we actually started making it for ourselves. And those recipes, at some point, we said, well, you know, we should probably market that to other folks.
1: (laughs) You're right. And even in the early days when the software, when we hadn't spent millions and millions to make this amazing software, when it was in its infancy, one of the things that we had going for us is we understood the struggle. We knew what other lenders were dealing with and what their problems were and what their pain points were. And so, it often would turn into a consulting experience where at first they might say, well, what about this? What about this? And with a little bit of a prove yourself to me undertone. And by the end of say a demo, they're often saying, well, tell me about this. Well, what would you do here? Hey, we're having this situation. We're not quite sure what to do. And because we were lenders ourselves and had lent out millions of dollars with our own money and had lots of experiences of good things and bad things and how to handle those, we were able to guide them through. And then oftentimes they end up saying, well, dang, you know, if you guys are using this software and you're winning this much, that's the kind of relationship I want to have. So it's kind of the background of we not only were eating our own cooking, we were developing the software based off of the needs that we had as lenders and then building the technology to solve our own problems.
0: This is something that occurs repeatedly, especially in financial services. So another world that I happen to be intimately familiar with is the world of sell-side brokerage and the technology that powers trading order routing, risk management, order management, that type of infrastructure. And if you look at the DNA, ultimately, and I happen to sit on the board of a company that does just that, and if you look at the DNA of the company, It emanates, it started as a homegrown technology built for a broker-dealer. And so it's exactly the same argument saying, and the reason why so many of the folks who were with the company over the years had that credibility with their peers on the street when they went out to a meeting and said, oh, you're looking to buy an order management system. Well, guess what? We built it for ourselves. We could talk like you do. We understand exactly where you're going with this and why you need it. The other thing that I find very compelling and it sort of fits what started to gel in my mind at least in as we transition away from era of easy money and quantitative easing and really the ability for many entrepreneurs over the last decade and a half to spend a lot of time on R&D without having to worry so much about monetization because the monetization became more an exercise of creating the right momentum to secure the next leg of financing, right? And so entrepreneurs developed a very specific skill set, which was to develop and to sell an asset that wasn't always necessarily a revenue-producing asset or to, at the scale that is typically required when the cost of capital is high, but certainly... Agents optimize for the set of circumstances that they're in, right? And so when money was easy, I think as we go back and people say, well, this is a highly restrictive capital environment, I don't think it is. I think we're just reverted back to what normal cycle looks like. You know, Interest rates at 5% are way higher than for, for people who've only experienced a zero interest rate policy for the last decade and a half who really just graduated from college and About 10 years ago. But for those of us who've lived through cycles, this is not abnormal. And what it means is, I strongly believe, and this ties into your story and an overarching theme, is I think we're entering in a decade where bootstrapping is going to start happening a lot more. And it's interesting because I'm seeing it across the board with entrepreneurs who are probably in that situation where they're starting to run out of cash. They've got something. They've got something. They've got an inkling of what the business could be. But because the next round is no longer readily available, and maybe they're getting a bridge for their existing supporters, but they really have to go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, well, how are we going to make this work? Yeah, I love that point. And those businesses that survive, that process are going to be great businesses they might not be you guys were fortunate enough to scale and have something where the addressable market was evidently large enough to sustain a billion dollar valuation but even if you don't at least what you get out of it is you actually get that simple equation which is x is what comes in y is what goes out x minus y equals profits right yep and just would love to hear your thoughts on that
1: yeah yeah I would say that on average, at least once a week, this year, 2023, I get a call from a friend or a friend of a friend. And the genesis of the call is, I have this great business idea. I'd love for you to be a mentor in some way, but I would also like you to invest. I need some cash. And what every single time after I try to really understand what their business is, the problems that they're solving for the consumer, what the opportunity is, all that fun stuff, is they ask for anything, could be 25 grand, could be millions of dollars. And I've had that scenario happen this year. And what I always go to is, what if raising money was not an option? A bank wouldn't give you a dollar, an investor wouldn't give you a dollar. What would you do? How would you proceed? How would things be different? And what's really interesting is uh, taking them on this little journey, they quickly know what they would do if it just wasn't an option to raise capital, and then I'll often lean into, well, then do that. Don't give away a big chunk of your business at this early, early stage. Your company's not worth anything, right? And they're going to make up some number that their company's worth a half a million or 5 million, typically within that window. But the truth is they're just guessing on what it's worth. It's worth nothing. But if they can prove their model, then their business could be worth quite a bit. We are able to bootstrap our business 100% until we get, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollar valuation where we can take a hundred million off the table, all secondary without giving up control of our business, right? And so we were able to thread that needle because we are willing to bootstrap the business. We started generating real revenue. We had net profits of seven digits a month, like clockwork, all because we never borrowed a penny from anybody. And we were then in control of our destiny. When you do borrow or you raise people often feel like that is the win yes somebody invested four million dollars into my business and now they act different they fly first class on the investor's dollar they stay in the nicer hotel they spend extra on that marketing gamble they do this stuff to look like they're bigger better and better than they really are and then when they start running light on capital again They go try to do that next raise and keep this facade going that magic is happening while they're really doing this song and this dance of looking like they are profitable because the game is now that next capital raise. When my belief is the game should be profitability. And if that's the focus, you're willing to have a hard conversation with an employee that is providing very little value six months earlier because the bottom line forces you to have that conversation. If you just raised you know, $4 million from a buddy, then yeah, sometimes you'll just table that difficult conversation and, well, let's just give it some time and let's figure this out or let's keep paying that marketing firm. We're not quite sure what they're doing or if it's providing any value, but that's okay. We have money to burn. When it's your own capital and you can really think of that dollar as, am I taking that home to feed my kids or am I going to burn it with this idea? You treat it differently when you're bootstrapping versus spending an investor's capital.
0: Makes total sense. And I'm really looking forward to the feedback and talking about this content specifically because coming from someone who's actually done it, I think the mentorship that people come to you for, that's what they're getting. And I think those that probably walk out of a meeting saying, well, I, gosh, I wish you'd given me some money are probably missing the point. At some point in their journey, their business might warrant raising some money. But what you've really allowed them to think is, first and foremost, is this even going to work, right? Yeah. And if you have the slightest hesitation and you're still out there trying to raise money and you're not entirely convinced, then why would you want someone else to take the risk on that deal? And that's the real question that I think many entrepreneurs are having to ask themselves in an era where there's more scrutiny and whether that scrutiny comes from financial discipline or just retrenchment and reassessment. It doesn't matter. The reality is capital is scarce or scarcer than it was.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of unfair to both sides. It's unfair to the investor and it's unfair to the business owner that's putting in their blood, sweat and tears, right? The nicest part about owning a business is you get to pick the 80 hours you work a week, right? So it's a real commitment to start a business and it becomes like a kid in many ways. And so you're going to market saying, my business is worth, $5 $5 million, you have no revenue to validate such a, a valuation, right? And on the flip side of the coin, if you even do get an investor involved, likely you gave up too much of the business because you didn't have the numbers to prove its value. So turn it on its head, bootstrap the business, generate some revenue, right? If you wait to ship the product until it's perfect, you waited too long. You got to get it out there. You got to see what the market says about it. And then have a listening ear on how you should tweak your product to make it better and better. And then when you have real revenue and you have net profit, when you go to market, you can actually get a really strong evaluation. And so when you do sell, say, a minority interest, that check is meaningful where you might not ever have to work again. Now you work or whatever you invest your time in is because you're cognizantly choosing to instead of saying. This is what I have to do to cover the
0: mortgage. Yep. So a business like Loan Pro that started and originated as solving a problem in your auto lending business, you start experiencing the initial wave of adoption, right? So at that point, I'm assuming, despite what it sounds like a very strong, even at that stage, entrepreneurial DNA with you and your brothers. You still probably have to figure out, okay, well, okay, now we're starting to sell software. So I'm trying to think about how do you start? You said you're the brother's very strong on the operations side, brother's very analytical, and you're the business development person. When you sit down and you start thinking, okay, sounds like we have a new business here. How do you think about structuring and operationalizing that effort, right? Because it's moving away from doing the lending yourselves and using the software to lend in the auto business. This is a software business. So talk to us about if you're flying that room in the early days of that business, when you start experiencing traction, how do you go about structuring it operationally? Yeah.
1: Well, I think of it in four components. Number one is how are we going to fund this? Our solution was we're going to use revenue from the lending business to fund it. So we'll take profits from business seven to fund business eight, so to speak. So that's number one question. And then the next three question is, who's going to take responsibility for generating revenue? Who's going to take responsibility for taking care of the active customers, customer support, operations, things of that nature? And who's going to take care of all the back office stuff? And so we divided all those like we did with all of our previous businesses. And I took lead on the revenue side. My brother, Ben, took a lead on the operations side. And Rhett took lead on all the back office stuff.
0: That is, is amazing. And so in terms of scaling, so another thing that comes to mind is when you have such a tight symbiotic relationship, and if they, we're talking here, it's not even like tight. my business partner is my best friend. We went to college together. We started a business together. So we worked together for a long time and it's a great trust and there's an accountability mechanism there. And even that, when you start thinking about, well, we need to bring other people into the fray, we need to start scaling, right? Yeah. Was it challenging? Did it come naturally? The leadership aspect? like I could tell from the story that you guys individually had highly non-overlapping skills, could solve a lot of things together, but at some point, you're going to need more than three people, right? (laughs) Yes. How did you evolve through that? And that's a constant journey, right? I mean, you don't manage a 20% organization in the same way that you manage a 200 person organization.
1: Yep, you're right. We've gone through both of those scenarios and it has been a struggle. It's probably one of the largest struggles is personnel and taking care of their human needs and having a listening ear, but making sure that all the team members are providing more value than they are costing the business, or else that doesn't make a ton of sense from a business perspective. So it's been a a bit of a journey for us, but how we looked at it, especially in the early days is we were not going to ask anybody that was working for the business to do anything that we ourselves wouldn't be willing to do. And if that's cleaning the toilets, I've done that right, in our offices. If it's going in whatever the dirty job is or the intense job, we, our leadership style, all of us was look, I'm not going to ask anybody on my team to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And so it was much more of a, we're going to war together, but I'm not going to sit on my horse at the back and tell you guys to go up there and attack. I'm going to be at the front of the lines and, and we're going to do this together. And so it built, we feel like that built much more of a team feeling, much more of a, I use this word relatively loosely, but of a family, of a a company family where, hey, look, you have my back and I have your back and let's go to war together and let's do what we can so we collectively win.
0: The notion of the extended family is one that I hear a lot when talking to bootstrap businesses, especially. I don't tend to hear it as much from venture back companies, but it is a term that I hear repeatedly in bootstrap conversations, whether you're talking to the owners about a liquidity event or just talking to folks and understanding their business, it does come. And it brings an interesting point. The incentive, the alignment, and the contract really, I mean, quote unquote, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be structured that way. But there is an understanding in the traditional VC-backed path where key employees will receive stock options. They'll get an incentive to work for a certain period of time. And if the company does well and that is being recognized by third party investors, the value of their shares should appreciate over time. Now, in the context of a company that is bootstrapped, presumably is at some point starting to generate cash flow and positive cash flow, how did you guys think about incentivizing? So, you know, people work for companies for different reasons, right? One should not discount. The utility that labor finds in going to work every day and being treated like, quote-unquote, family, being respected, right? It's a fair shake. It's a fair, as you said, right? You also had to look at, okay, well, who's producing? We're running a business. We wouldn't ask anyone to do something. We're not doing ourselves. We're applying the same level of scrutiny to ourselves and the same high standards of performance. But that's one aspect, and it's on some level, it's intangible. What about the tangible incentive alignment? How did you guys think about that in the context of a private bootstrap company? Yeah,
1: it's definitely changed throughout the years. Early on, it was you play all the roles an employees having a, you know, has a blow up with their spouse and it wasn't uncommon for us to be there at midnight to help them through this difficult situation or an employee gets A really difficult diagnostic, and they're not going to be able to provide much value in the marketplace for the next six months, but they're fighting for their life and choosing to keep them on payroll during that period of time. Or if we have a vacancy in one of our second homes, sending an employee and their people there to go enjoy the place, it's going to sit vacant anyways, might as well have our people have some of these perks that their labor helped produce. And then, of course, at this stage, stock options are a real part of the play. And there's a lot of, of our team members that we want to win with us. I mean, it doesn't really, if we end up selling the company for gobs of money in the future, honestly, what, is it, what difference does it make to me? That, that next million dollars isn't that impactful to my life. Or let me say it this way the first million dollars is surely more impactful to your life than the second. And the second's more impactful to the third. And so on you now get into the billions. What does that matter as there's not that much of a utility to it, but to some of our team members that have fought the good fight with us for years and years, well, when we have the big win, we look forward to not all of them, but those ones that have bled and sweat with us for a long period of time or new, but are t- providing a ton of value. We want them to get rich and to have a meaningful, financial change in their life because they bet and on loan pro and they helped get us to that next level. I would say it's threading the needle between seeing team members as humans that have complex lives and being cognizant of that and receptive to the other moving pieces of their existence. And then also making sure that if you do have that big win someday, that, there's a little bit of love that's being shared among some of those that really helped you get there.
0: This is, again, I'm hoping listeners will take away, I think, great wisdom, great take on alignment. I wish a lot more business owners thought that way. I think the ones that are successful in going down the path that you guys did inevitably have to because the other thing is when you don't have that flashy third-party evaluation coming from a snazzy Silicon Valley venture firm, well, you have to make a good case for yourself, right? That case is going to be, well, once people start peeking under the hood, once they're inside, they see if the business is doing well or not. And secondly, you've got to have something extra, right? The same thing that drove you and allowed you to get off the ground without that help is probably the same mentality. They say culture... Eat strategy for breakfast, right? I mean, it really starts with that. And especially, I think, in the bootstrap con. And again, the discipline, right, that you need is, on some level, much, much harder and much more difficult to accomplish than it is. When you have that, to your point, if you've got the third-party money, you can fly first class and go to fancy hotels, and you've got that press release going on. Here, you have to make a case. Why are you a better place to work at? Not just because we've got XYZ firm on the cap table, but because our culture is. So moving on to the market, right? Talk to me about at this stage of the game and how has it evolved actually from the early days, what is your market? Because there's something about that zero to $10 million in revenues, which is you're going to land some initial beachheads, right? You're going to make some headway in winning new customers. The transition then that occurs, and that's where many companies actually struggle with that transition without shifting or hiring a different type of management, especially on the revenue side, right? It's typically when you start seeing firms hiring CROs and putting in a lot more process in place. Because the zero to 10 is about winning beachheads. It's the charisma. It's the reputation. It's really by hook and by crook, right? You're going to go and convince people like, This is why you need to do business with me. From 10 to 30, 30 to to 100, it's a different sale. It's a lot more about expanding. It's a lot more about upselling. And it's a lot more about moving into sales processes where it's less about that high conviction sale. We go back to articulating the value, what you mentioned earlier on. But how do you articulate the value in that more mature phase versus the first one?
1: So it's a good question have a lot of personal experience being involved as the CRO and co-founder of Loan Pro, getting us from a zero to a billion dollar valuation. And that's a lot of things that you just mentioned. It's charisma, it's passion, it's understanding the need of the client and solving the problem with them. And my team did amazing getting this to that point. My new CRO is probably going to be able to answer the question better, how to get us from the billion dollar mark to greater than that. The $10 billion mark, and that's his run to get us from one to 10. But although a very different game, we view every additional zero in valuation as the same hard. So to get a company from a million dollar valuation to 10 million is, that's a feat, it really is. But it's the same difficult to get it from 10 million to 100 million, and then the 100 million to a billion, and then a billion to 10 billion. So every zero, we view it that as, okay, great. That's the mark. It was. It's as hard as getting it from 1 million to 10 million. And we did that. And then it's as hard from 10 to 100. And we did that. Then 100 to a billion, we did that. Now let's do it one more time. Let's get it from 1 billion to, to 10 billion. So it is, you mentioned it before, running a company with 20 employees. That's a very different company than running a company with Let's say two hundred employees. That's a different experience, and the truth is hiring an employee that's willing to work for a bootstrap small business with two employees or twenty employees that's a different experience than hiring somebody when your company's worth a billion dollars. just is I mean they have a different mindset of what they're getting involved with what they focus on is different. There's a lot of different components to it, and I'm not saying one is right and one's wrong but it is like running a completely different business and when you're small and you're scrappy and you're in there fighting the demons in the front line your peers and coworkers they're rooting for you and but it's not always that same way when they enter the organization feeling like oh wow we just i'm now working for the third fastest growing company in Utah and these they don't think of the founders as these scrappy entrepreneurs—they think of them as these potentially rich people—and at the top of the ladder. And they they look at the experience a little different. So we've had to be very cognizant about how the business is adjusting over time, and it's not not looking at it as it good or bad, but rather thinking these are natural transitions that happen in a business.
0: Did you, in terms of both process and hires? Did you follow a relatively standard playbook of starting to build a lot of rev-ups within the organization, implementing systems, getting people to really contribute the data in building the different stages in the pipeline, really operationalizing the funnel, and then hiring along the way different types of profiles of people who could go and make the sale at that stage in the business? Did it come to you naturally? Did you hire a coach? Did you read a lot about it, or did it you know? Did you just folk like figure it out by yourself along the way, trial and error?
1: Yeah. So I would say that getting it from to zero to a billion, no, we didn't really do it the traditional way. In fact, VC firms when we were looking at at selling a minority interest and eventually did, they were really surprised at the lack of capital that we had thrown into sales and marketing. It was such a small portion of our overall spend. And once again, because we were bootstrapped. And so me and my scrappy team of sales and marketers, we were able to get a lot done with a very very shoestring budget. It's one of the reasons we were able to have seven digits of monthly profitability because we weren't throwing hundreds of thousands at marketing and hundreds of thousands in monthly commissions. We were... Young and scrappy, and word of mouth, and a lot of existing customers that we reached out to those customers and asked them who else do they know that also might be able to benefit from Loan Pro services. And then we would get direct introductions to potential clients. So, zero to a billion, it was very, very scrappy and unconventional, but a billion plus. Our new CRO is super good at the second kind of stuff that you said. All of the pipeline management and lead generation and all of the statistics and hence one of the reasons that we we needed somebody that had that was more in line with that skill set to help us go from the billion to adding one more zero behind that
0: that's great and also one thing that i developed a lot of respect in our conversation is your ability to say look I in terms of where I want to spend my time, but also maybe where my skill set lies. Like I was the guy to do this and now I'm the guy to do this, and recognizing when to transition and position yourself very differently in terms of your contribution to the business. I know many founders struggle with that, right? And you seem to have found quite a bit to do with your time and we'll get to that. (laughs) To close on the revenue evolution over time, naturally when you started selling and winning business, did diversification come naturally? In other words, of course it was very much in the initial vertical, but did you find that the diversification occurred naturally or is something that you had to work at? Or this is something that has followed you over the years where you feel like you're more concentrated in certain accounts and certain verticals or sub-verticals? Yeah.
1: So first we had to adjust the product over time so that we could appeal to, exist, to additional types of lenders, right? So we entered into the space through auto lending. So that's what the first version of the software looked like. It was designed for auto lending businesses. But now when you look at the software, it's across all different types of verticals, business to business and business to consumer, collateral, link collateral or not, a 0% interest to double or triple percent interest based on the type of lending, And then now we even so we frankly, we do everything in the installment world, whatever the flavor is, if it's buy now, pay later, if it's single pay, if it's a mortgage and everything in between doesn't really matter. We facilitate that from a structural perspective inside the platform. And then, but we really believe that you got to be running two businesses at the same time. And the first business you run is your core business. That's the one that brings the revenue in. It's what you're already good at. But if you only run that business, then somebody else is going to come around and they're going to eat your lunch without you even knowing it because you didn't focus on you know, the innovator's dilemma. You didn't let somebody else innovate and take you out. So the second business you need to run is tomorrow's business. And our tomorrow's business for the last three years has been all things in the credit card loan servicing so that you can do both of these inside of the same platform. And we're getting a ton of traction on that. So what pays the bills and keeps the lights on is the installment-based platform. And we have over a 1,000 lenders. Some of those lenders pay as little as a 1000 bucks a month on a reoccurring revenue. Other lenders are paying us a quarter million dollars a month or more on monthly reoccurring revenue. And it's the same platform. They just have more products and more loans inside the, the platform. We're just doing more for some of these enterprise-type lenders. And then tomorrow's business is sure, yes, it is installment lending, but it's also we have 13 patents pending on a new way of doing credit card loan servicing that has never been done before that we're super excited as the business of tomorrow.
0: There's a pattern here again. All of your businesses, as you started this conversation, you said, we would reinvest the proceeds are some of the results of the prior business in the new business. And so what I take from that is offense is the best defense. In other words, if you have something that's doing well, you start if as long as you want to stay in the game. But I'd say to a certain extent, as long as you are a shareholder in a business, you can't rest on your laurels because to your point, someone's going to eat your lunch. That's the nature of capitalism, right? And so you need to start reallocating dollars where you anticipate the highest return on that investment is going to come, right? It sounds like you've already started that from within. It's not a different business. It's just a different line of business. So as we draw to a close, and this has been a a wonderful conversation full of really, really precious insights from anyone thinking about, again, the bootstrapping of a business, how to go about growing it, and the wisdom that comes that you've developed over time. Where do you spend most of your time these days and what keeps you busy?
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned before, I realized about seven, eight months ago that, hey, I look, if I made millions of dollars more, millions of dollars less in a given year, that didn't actually do anything for me emotionally or financially, really. It was my situation, my life was the same. And we need a CRO that is hungrier than I was for. This next phase of Loan Pro. So, we found an amazing CRO. He's doing just that. It's super exciting. But I wanted to move on to something that was a little bit more passionate for me. As you mentioned, I wrote a book last year called G Cubed. Its intent is to be a formula that anybody can use to achieve personal fulfillment in life, regardless what your background or religious beliefs are or whatever your race, religion, creed, sexual preference, doesn't matter. Just a formula that anybody could use to become personally fulfilled in this life so wrote that book and then we actually invited a fourth brother he is a professor of economics at the university of utah and at westminster we asked him if he'd retire from that and we started a a 501c3 public charity called become more and so it focuses on two things and i spent i kind of split my time in two ways about 50 percent of my time on family office managing Benz and my $100 million we took off the table because, frankly, we haven't spent any of it. We just invest it. And so I manage that about 50% of my time. And the other 50% of my time I do with our new public charity called Become More with two focuses. The first one is to increase fulfillment for those among us. So the thesis is that we Americans are often rich in resource, but we're poor in fulfillment. And the second component of Become More is decreasing poverty in the rural areas of Cambodia. Uh, My brother, Wade, he speaks Khmer, the Cambodian language fluently. And he's been over to Cambodia dozens of times over the last 20 years. And so we asked him if he'd come and and help out with this charity. He's now the president of Become More. He's spending about 40% of 2023 in Cambodia. So we're doing two things. We're taking Americans on fulfillment trips to Cambodia where they can get a change of perspective by going there and seeing how these people live and where they are often poor in resource but they're rich in fulfillment in fact three out of the last four years in a row they've been voted the happiest people on the planet and that's kind of odd for coming from our american culture of wait wait a minute you don't have ac you don't know what you're going to eat in two days from now your circumstances are pretty dire and yet you're so happy what an interesting phenomenon and so we're taking americans to cambodia on these fulfillment trips for that perspective change i just got back two and a half weeks ago from another one of them and they're awesome the time zone difference is always a quite a struggle to get used to but other than that they are a magic experience but what we're doing in cambodia is we're adopting villages so we don't want to have it be the american saviors go over there and save the day so we're partnering with the local leaders and the local community, and village by village, we're adopting these villages. And honestly, it's a really fun experience. Probably not enough time on this podcast to get into all the details, but we're focusing on three key initiatives when we adopt a village. And so we adopted the first village. It's a million bucks to adopt a village. You can look at that as a lot or little. It's kind of amazing. You can adopt a village of 1,200 people, and for $1 million, you can lift the whole village out of both poverty and extreme poverty. And so we effectively created a formula for lifting villages in the rural areas of Cambodia after much iteration out of poverty. And step one is health. So we're coming in and using the primary schools as our central hub, and we're giving them some basic health resources that they don't have otherwise, right? Because if you feel like crap, you don't really care about learning that next thing or about how much money is in your bank account. You just want to feel better. And they're the, kind of the same way. So we're focusing on very basic things. Clean water, washing station, bathrooms. So we're putting clean water right there at the primary schools. We're, we're bringing in dentists, and both from America and local students, and, and giving these people dental work. They have nobody in their area that even does dentistry. They don't have the money to afford it, so no dentists come there. And you look at these kids' mouths, and we've actually charted their mouths and these little kids, they have about 60 to 65% of their mouths that are black around their teeth. They've never brushed their teeth once in their life. They've never seen a dentist before, right? And, and feminine hygiene and some other cool things on the health side. But the truth is, that's just a money suck. And so we've calculated that to, let's say, be about $180,000 in the health category for a three-year period of providing this help. And the second category is education. And we break that into two components. One is getting the kids to the public school. They technically have free school out there, although you need to have a uniform. You need to be able to help pay for part of the utilities. You need to be able to get to school. So it might require a bike or something else like that. And we also have something that we call the attendance rice. So some kids want to go, frankly, almost all the kids want to go really bad out there, but their parents are like, look, it'd be great for you to go. But We need your labor because we don't know what we're going to eat tomorrow. So sorry, you can't go to school. So what we're doing is we're paying the child. If they have 85% attendance or higher, we pay the child in rice. So when necessary, not in all cases. So now those parents say, child, we need you to go to school because we need you to bring that rice home on a monthly frequency. So that's the first part of the education. The second part is we have a relationship with these villages that because school gets out at noon, for the primary schools, we get to use the school from noon to five free. And we've hired a bunch of English teachers, they all the kids have these become more shirts, and we teach them English for the second half of the day. And so it's not just because it's the English we speak, it's because it's the global business language. And the reality is, is these kids, when they, if they learn English fluently, and they have no other education in Cambodia, they can earn as much as somebody that knows no English and has a PhD in Cambodia. Is that valuable of a skill for them to learn? So, but once again, that's also a cash suck, right? Like most charities, these are constant blood transfusions you have to come back for. We didn't want to come more to be charity that constantly needed for us and or others to be putting tons of capital in it to do these good things. So the third category is where all the magic happens. And it's what we call the fat cow family farms. And this is what makes the whole program sustainable. So we're standing up, say, 50, 65 fat cow family farms, where some Cambodian in the rural area, they'll have a small business. It's called One Skinny Cow. It's a female cow. It's emaciated, big hips, super skinny, see all the ribs. And that's their business. And they try to earn money by having their skinny cow. Well, what we do is we now come in and we help them set up a whole fat cow family farm. So on their land, we will put a structure for shade and a fence, and we'll drill for water right there on their property so that one of their sons doesn't need to take the cow around with a rope for 10 hours a day, wasting his time finding random things to eat and drink. But right there, we'll bring it food, we'll bring it protein, we'll vaccinate it, decreasing the likelihood that it's going to die by a significant margin. We'll bring it and have it be impregnated by our huge bull and or do in vitro fertilization, and we'll fatten their cow up for six months. And then we'll also purchase and park a Become More cow right next to their cow in their same pin that they will take care of for free. And then nine and a half months later, both cows will pop out a baby and that their cow pops out is called the Karma calf. And they, typically husband and wife, go and collectively decide with the village chief and the commune chief what other family in the village this calf should go to. And that will start the next fat cow family farm and so on. And the boys, after three years, will get this up to 177 fat cow family farms in one village. At that point, that takes about three years for this to happen, we will have enough fat cow family farms. When the cows have calves that are girls, first, the cow that is owned by the family, they now get to pop out a fat cow about every year instead of a skinny cow every other year. But all of the calves that pop out of the become more cow, they, the girls will be used to create more fat cow family farms, and the boys will be sold at market, and the cash will be used to fund the, both the health initiative and the education initiative. This is a very karma-focused community, right? There are a lot of Hindus and Buddhists. They really believe in do good and good will come back to you. And so they know that they're not only building a better business for them where they can increase the size of their herd, which is their wealth, but they also are uh, taking care of the become more cow, that the babies will pop out and they'll create more fat cow family farms for other community members, or the boys will be sold at market to be able to support ongoing the health initiative and the English school and the education initiative. So long speech there, but super passionate about it. We're super excited that this is a sustainable way for not for the white man to come in there and say, hey, hey let's do a photo op of these poor people, right? But instead, help them help themselves and create a way that is helping them create little mini businesses, which is a really important business out there of cattle and have the proceeds not only help their own family, but help the community, and then spill into other things that are really needed in the area, like these key health initiatives and this education initiative.
0: Now, as I was listening to you, I could really sense that the passion, the dedication to that effort. But what was really striking is, similar to the way you talked about your various businesses and the initiatives over the years of you and your brothers building businesses, is at the end of the day, you guys were able to succeed and achieve as much as you did because you do bring a highly structured approach to each and every problem and then the execution that follows to solve that problem, right? And as I was listening to you, again, I detected the same pattern of structuring the approach, structuring your arguments, right? I can't recall any time I asked you a question during this podcast where you didn't actually have it clearly articulate set of bullet points where you're walking me through how you went about it, right? And similarly here, there is a clear plan. And I would say anyone wanting to support an initiative like this, and whether you're funding it out of your own pocket or not, wants to see that kind of rigor, right? So I'd say you may or may not realize it, but as a third-party listener, what I detected is the same approach that you use to bootstrap your own businesses, and saying, okay, this is the problem, this is the situation, this is how we're gonna go about it, and these are the things we're gonna do, and we're gonna do them. So thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I've truly enjoyed it. I love it because it falls in that theme of bootstrapping that I think is going to become a lot more prevalent, and I hope people draw a lot of useful and interesting conclusions from your approach, and I'm sure you've got so much to continue contributing and building whether it's Loan Pro and the other things that you're involved in. So I look forward to staying in touch and seeing what you continue to build.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to be here today. Anybody wants to learn more about the GQ formula, you can go to com. Or even more exciting is become org. There's just a ton of cool stuff there. We, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We've donated seven digits to this initiative. But you're right, it's taking the skills of business and then instead of now just focusing on building a, a personal net worth that's larger, rather, what kind of long term impact can we have by not having it be something that is quote unquote ours, but have it be something that is, it's public, it's everybody, it's a public charity, right? And it's something that is hopefully going to live much longer than any of us ever live. And the only way we do that is have it be adopted by others and have others attached to this fun, passion project, right? We've sent out hundreds of people now to Cambodia. And a lot of those have been loan pro employees. You talked about culture. How do you build a strong culture? Well, frankly, we've sent out lots of loan, become more trips where it's been loan pro employees, plus their plus one, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, whoever it might be to go and have these experiences to see the Cambodian people and get that own paradigm shift for themselves of, Maybe it's a son or a daughter that realizes, wow, my skinny view of the world that football is so important or the cheerleading is so important or this person did or didn't say this thing to me in the hall, they get a different perspective and they realize, wow, these kids, they don't know if they're going to eat tomorrow. They've been wearing those same shoes and they're breaking their toes because they're four sizes too small. And they've been wearing them for four years, right? There's just a different shift of when you realize that, Sometimes the things we worry about and think about, others, they don't have the luxury of worrying about those things. And that, that adjustment, it's magic.
0: Fantastic. This is a great way to end it. And I thank you again for delivering the message. I hope many more people will go and check out all your different initiatives. And I think they'll be amazed at what you guys are doing.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to be here. If I can ever be of assistance to you or, or any of your listeners, Please reach out. I'd be more than happy to do so.
0: Sounds great. Thank you, Lloyd. Thank you so much. Have a great day. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.